Welcome to The Breadwinners, the podcast about the never-ending hustle and its impact on all aspects of our lives. From our financial life, to our relationships, to our kids, to our health, we're interested in what it takes to keep everything going. This podcast is about working, money, and family. And in every episode, we consider the research and share our takes on what we're learning every day about breadwinning. I'm Rachel Ellison. I'm an executive coach and management consultant who works with companies big and small to design workplace policies that work for all employees. And most days, I'm joined by my co-host, Jennifer Owens. But on this special episode of The Breadwinners, I'm joined by Julie Cashin. Julie is a policy leader and leadership coach, expert on work, family, and caregiving issues. She's a director of women's economic justice and senior fellow at the Century Foundation and a policy advisor to the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Welcome, Julie. Thanks so much. It's so nice to be here. It's so nice to have you here. We go back a ways and I'm thrilled that we get to get to chat here on the breadwinners together. So as you know, we usually start our episodes with a stat. Um, one that we're going to touch on today, we're going to start from today, is uh, from a Center for American Progress study that was uh, published in April as we said like decades ago in in COVID times um, that showed that the coronavirus pandemic could lead to a loss of nearly 4.5 million childcare slots. Um, That's a lot of slots. That's a lot of families without childcare. (laughs) I mean, what, what, what does this mean? When you saw that stat, what, what came to what came to mind for you? Before the COVID pandemic started, parents were already struggling. So there are so many communities where there are not great affordable childcare options, where, you know, there's the childcare options that are there don't meet a parent's scheduling needs. And also our workplace policies were not built for caregivers. So right. we're already starting at this deficit and then COVID-19 hit. And what that meant for childcare is that, you know, many child cares closed down. And when they did, they lost all of the parent fees they relied on. They, some of them lost their government funding. And so they're not able to pay their rent or pay their mortgage so that they, they are going to lose their building. So they won't be able to reopen when everything else reopens. So it's a really, big problem today, and it's going to be a worse problem tomorrow. And so we have had some childcare programs that have stayed open to serve essential workers, but even for them, their costs have gone way up because they have to have smaller class sizes and they need to pay for the protective equipment and safety and sanitation. And so it's just a real challenge to provide childcare, not to mention the fact that our schools have been closed for a while. And so parents are trying to figure out how to do distance learning while they're working from home or while they're going to their place of work. So parents are really struggling right now. We are. (laughs) We are. I mean, I think, you know, what, what Jennifer and I have talked about before is that there have been some great articles that have come out since since Corona, since Corona started, um, about just how we were, you know, as you said, workplace workplace policies were not comprehensive enough. School day interfered with work schedules very frequently. But there was a sort of sense that like 
yeah, we're going to pretend that's not happening. Like there was just a sense of, you know, let's not recognize how much juggling and scrambling parents have to do given where we are today and the challenges that are, um, that we're facing with childcare providers and the close and the, you know, the, the slots that are going to disappear. What do you think, like, how can, how can companies, how can our government kind of assume that we'll just pick up the pieces as working parents and, and, and fix it and keep going? Well, Florida State just put out a policy that said that they are going to end their, they had changed their work from home policy to say that you could provide care for loved ones while you were working from home. And they just decided to change that. So think about that, like nothing else has changed. They just decided to punish parents for having to care for their kids while they're still trying to work. Um, so I think we're seeing a variety of responses, you know, some are extreme like that. And some companies are being very thoughtful about it and, and leading with the ideas of how can we support you? How can we, you know, change our work hours so that you can still participate? How, how can we change our expectations so that parents who need to provide care can participate? But I, I still think we have this fundamental problem that our workplace rules, our public policies were largely built by straight white men for straight white men who didn't have caregiving responsibilities. And there's been, you know, this sort of sense of, oh, now we have caregivers in the workforce. Well, you have to figure out how to make your life work within our context. And I think it's time to flip that. And I think... Mm. This is a moment where we can see just how important that is. And I think men are stepping up as caregivers in, in so many homes right now and seeing firsthand how much work there is to do. And I'm hoping that that also helps to change some of this conversation. Yeah. I mean, do you, we've talked about this in the past, you know, when you, are you hopeful or Jennifer and I have talked about this as well. Are you hopeful? How do you feel like this will impact gender dynamics in the home? Do you feel like it's going to change them long-term? Do you feel like what's your expectation for how that, what that impact is going to be? Well, I know there was an article I just saw a headline that said something like, you know, coronavirus threatens to wipe out gender equality gains across right. the globe. Right. Right. So, um, I think that that, I think it, it can go well, to different agree ways. With that article? I don't know. You know, I, <laughs> I, the optimist in me says we're going to be able to change things now that people are seeing things more clearly, that they understand that we need to build a care economy and build everything else on top of that. You know, that, yep. that we're in this kind of revolutionary moment and we can have that. And then at the same time, uh, we know that women are losing more jobs than men. We know that black women are losing more jobs than white women. We know that women are spending more of their hours on care and housework, even though men may be stepping up. And so the more things change, the more they stay the same. I, you know, it depends on my mood, whether I'm optimistic or uh, really cynical. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. I mean, I think there was, there's another article in the Atlantic that said kind of like, is feminism doomed by like the coronavirus? Yeah. I don't remember. It was something to that effect. And yeah. it was like, no, it was like, no, this is our moment, right? Like, like the destabilization of these systems may mean that everybody sort of realizes that this isn't working. But as we're seeing in Florida, 
it's actually people are taking it the other way. Like, no, no, you can't care for people while you're at home. Um, What? So we're back to that 4.5 million childcare slots and the, and the families that it's going to impact. What has been put in place to address the challenge? So like how, you know, you are an advocate, you are a coach, you, you know, this space, what is happening to try to, to try to stem the tide so we don't end up there or we, we try to, we try to, to stop this from happening. So there's some positive. Congress has passed $3.5 billion for childcare, aimed mostly at supporting childcare needs of essential workers. And Congress passed emergency paid leave, including paid sick days and paid family and medical leave. And that provision, those provisions included if you need to take time off because your child's childcare is closed or because their school is closed. Unfortunately, the paid leave provisions only cover about half the workforce because of some of the cuts that were made to it. Yeah. Who who does it cover? Because uh, I know that there are people who didn't even know that that, <laughs> that that was something that had come out. Who Who does it apply to? It applies to anyone who works for an employer with fewer than 500 employees. However, if you work for an employer that has fewer than 50, they can opt out. And if you work for in the healthcare uh, or emergency response sectors, those employers can also opt out. Uh, So those are some of the huge loopholes in the bill that or in the law that really need to be fixed. Got it. How, what's the, how, how do you think those loopholes are going to be addressed? Is there efforts to, to kind of close those loopholes? In fact, the HEROES Act, which passed the House of Representatives, did fix those loopholes. And now it's up to the Senate to take action, which is, you know, still a question of, of whether they will. I'm hoping it becomes a question of when they will, not whether. Uh, but just recently, Senator Murray brought up a big proposal that included $50 billion for childcare in the Senate and Republicans objected to it. So uh, I think the Senate is really yet to be seen whether they're going to do the right thing. And really we know that the 50 billion is much more what's needed. And it's actually at least $50 billion for emergency funding for childcare, because that's what would stabilize the sector, provide options for essential workers and invest in long-term recovery. Got it. Got it. So there's a lot, there's a lot more work to do to get us where we need to be. And it sounds like there's a lot more advocacy um, that needs to happen in order, in order to convince a a lot of people um, that this is something that we need. I think so. I think we're at a moment where we need a collective uprising, right? And I know part of the problem is that parents are so busy keeping their head above water and, you know, struggling to to just do the working and the parenting or the looking for a job or the juggling their finances that there's not, doesn't feel like there's any room to do the advocacy work. But at the same time, it's what's needed. And I feel like parents and teachers and childcare providers and nannies, and we all need to come together to say, this is what's best for all of us. We need a collective investment. We need a significant federal investment in this sector so that, you know, we can all afford good care. We can come back to work as the economy recovers. We can pay the people who provide the care what they are actually worth. Right now, they're making an average of $11 an hour, which is just so 
shameful, really, that this this job where you you know are caring for our children who are so important to us that we're not paying better for that. You know, we're not paying livable wages. Absolutely. Um, so one of the things that that really just that I'm trying to get my head around is how did we get here? Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things I was saying before you know, when we were talking, prepping for this interview, I was telling you about how I'm so fascinated with um, the childcare centers that that popped up in uh, factories during World War II, where women worked. Um, and, you know, there was really, there was a, it was high quality education. It was, they offered support, um, additional kind of support for, for working mothers to go kind of go shopping, get what they need to, to do to support their families, get what they, you know, have the time to be able to do that. Those childcare centers existed, you know, during World War II. And I know that the challenges that we face around childcare and the history of the industry um, or of, of childcare, uh, you know, goes back a lot further than that. But can you walk us through, like, how did we end up at a place where this was so undervalued? Yeah, so I think I think it's really important to talk about the Lanham Act, which is the the World War II. But going back a little bit further, you know, if you go back in U.S. history, enslaved women were tasked with caring for children, and usually at the expense of caring for their own children, they were caring for the children of the the slave owners of the slave masters. And more recently, families rely on the unpaid labor of moms, you know, although, of course, single moms and many moms of color have always had to do both work inside and outside the home. So we're building on this history where the economic value of this work is depressed, and it's based on the history of sexism and racism. And so when we were first able to make progress was during World War II because dads were off fighting the war, men were off fighting the war, and they needed moms in the factory. So they created the Lanham Act, these childcare centers, and they were basically considered a success that they supported moms to be able to work. And uh, they they really did what they were supposed to do. And then the, world, the war ended uh, and they close them down. Um, and one of the people who noted that that was probably not the right decision was Eleanor Roosevelt, who wrote a column saying that, you know, we actually need this on a constant basis, not not just a one-time emergency basis. Unfortunately, uh, her view on it did not hold. <laughs> right. Well, when she said it, you, I think you, we were talking about the quote earlier, and I feel like she said it really tongue-in-cheek. She was like, you may... Not everyone may have noticed that this is absolutely critical for us, but women have. Right. A few of us had an inkling that perhaps there was a need that was constantly with us. That was the exact quote. And so then after that, what happened? So after, you know, what happened after they, after we, do we immediately switch back to, you know, to the devaluing of childcare? How did, what exactly, how did it? Progress. Well, in the 1950s, there was a huge effort to uh, to really encourage women to be at home, to be homemakers. I, I should say, especially white women. There was still a reliance on black women, especially as domestic help, uh, domestic workers, I should say, uh, at that time. And then 
you know, as the women's movement grew in the 60s and then the 70s, there was another push for childcare. And Congress actually passed a bipartisan bill, the Comprehensive Child Development Act, and then President Nixon vetoed it. And when he did, he really made the case that this was sort of a, you know, a communist threat. And there was, there was a propaganda campaign against this, basically creating this false dichotomy that you were either, you know, families were responsible for children or the government was, and you had to choose between them and that family responsibility was the right one. And that if you relied on the government, you were going to have children organizing unions against their parents and smoking cigarettes. And there was just this, this awful campaign. And I think that some of that has Stayed, you know, I know was, I was going to say, yeah. I, I, I'm sorry, is that it's pretty close to what we're seeing right now in terms of, and I mean, it's, you know, we weren't talking about unions and kids smoking necessarily, but that kind of attitude, like it's, what's crazy about that is Dr. Spock was, was, was the, you know, renowned expert on, I would, I would say it, it would, he was the expert on child rearing, on child care. And so for him to kind of venture into that territory, I think a lot of people would assume that was based on science. Um, so it's just crazy. Yes. Crazy how much that informed what people thought at that point. And I was telling you that it reminded me of um, of an article that I found um, in my grandmother. My grandmother uh, was, I've mentioned her before on this podcast, but she, you know, she supported her she's the sort of career woman that I that I kind of idealized um I idealized all the women in my family but for different reasons and she you know she started out with basically nothing and she ended up as an SVP of a commercial real estate firm and so in her little tiny cottage in Mohegan like she had this Irma Bombeck article mm -hmm. um that and it was entitled we are known as women who have it all. We have our own houses to clean, quality time with our very own children, husbands to attend to, and meals to plan and cook and serve. We have second career and whole weekends to shop, run errands, take the dog to the vet, and do all the things we didn't finish during the week. Um, and then she ends with, you know, we are, we're so busy impressing everyone and able to leave small buildings in a single bound that we have set a standard for future generations that is frightening. And I, I loved that that little snippet that I found in there. I don't know what that, what my grandmother thought about it at the time, but you know, this idea that whatever Dr. Spock was, was saying that women needed to do whatever ideals we need to uphold, whatever, you know, uh, we are, whatever ideals we have been held to over the years, like we, it's dangerous. It's dangerous what we're doing. And we're now at a point where it's absolutely unsustainable. I was thinking when you were giving the intro to your podcast about, you know, if people were racing to keep everything going before the pandemic, right now they're racing marathons while juggling fire. Like, you know, it's like, it's like, yeah. just it's, it's everything is so magnified and that danger is real. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, you know, I wonder what it means, um, I talk about this a lot um, at work, but, you know, we are, as we go back to work, you know, we're now working remotely, but as we continue to, you know, deal with and, and get used to this new normal, um, the stress on 
on everyone, given that we're, you know, we're, we're trying to trying to stay healthy, trying to stay employed, trying to, um, you know, those are the basics that everyone is dealing with. People are going to be dealing with grief and there's, you know, there's so much civil unrest right now. Um, and then parents on top of that are going to have just, as you said, juggling fire. What did you say? Juggling? Juggling fire while running, racing a marathon. Yeah. I mean, so I, you know, and Rafael, I want to add also, you know, the the add-on trauma for Black mothers, especially right now that, you know, I know there's so much, you know, if, if, if those of us who, you know, have been working to be anti-racist and to be good partners and co-conspirators in the movement are exhausted because of all these things and because of what's going on. Black mothers are more so. And I just, you know, I have so much sort of space and grace to, uh, that I think we need to give to black mothers who are working so hard and and facing so much. Absolutely. I mean, I was, um, you know, I know a couple of people who've been pregnant during Corona and, you know, certainly the mothers who are going in, all mothers who are going in right now um, are dealing with a ton of, um, of fear of risk um, during this time. And it's very scary. And, you know, when we see the data about black maternal mortality rates, um, it's, it's terrifying. So on top of everything that white men, white women are facing that, that are facing in when they are pregnant during this crazy time, um, there's, there's that piece to consider. And so one of my friends who is pregnant went to her doctor. And in addition to, you know, wearing PPE and, and wearing clothes that she was about to basically burn when she left, she started asking questions about like, how are you going to ensure that I am safe? How are you going to work against these, these practices that have, you know, that have, have resulted in a loss of so many lives and that are just so horrifying. And, and I mean, I think to, to have that extra, to be thinking about all of those extra questions and concerns and just the daily fatigue of being, being a parent right now. Um, I, I think about this moment in terms of the, the racial justice that so many people have, you know, become activist about or become more conscious of in, in, you know, become more deeply conscious of. And I think that that coming together with the challenges that parents are facing gives me some hope in that if we can fight these systems of racism and sexism, that we can see the path forward to support working parents, to support care. If we can understand that, the toxic masculinity of police brutality is the opposite of care and community and love and showing up for each other and choose the latter. I think that we can see that. I feel feel like, and you, you know, when you were talking earlier about how exhausted parents, we're exhausted and we don't have um, the energy for, you know, as we're balancing everything that we have to balance to be able to do that advocacy work um, is just incredibly hard. But the idea that these, that as we fight um, the, whether we're fighting um, toxic masculinity, whether we're fighting um, racial injustice, that those fights are going to kind of 
create a better world, which which will help working parents eventually all working parents get the all parents get the support they need. Julie, thank you so much for joining us today. Tell us how can people find you, follow you online? Where should they look? I do most of my political advocacy on Twitter uh, at Julie Cashin, K-A-S-H-E-N. I can also be found on the Century Foundation's website. That's www.cs.org. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us on The Breadwinners. Our guest today, as you all heard, was the wonderful Julie Cashin of the Century Foundation. You'll find links to her work in the episode description, wherever you listen to podcasts. Visit us anytime at thebreadwinnerspodcast.com to ask a question, make a point, or share your story. How are you making it work? Are you making it work? Are any of us making it work? We'd love to know. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review it. Let us know what you think about the breadwinners. Help us tell the stories that mean the most to you. And until next week, keep hustling. This podcast is part of the Sound Advice FM network. Sound Advice FM, women's voices amplified.